Well, as many of you are aware, this year, 2017, marks the 500-year anniversary of the posting of the 95 Thesis by Martin Luther on the front door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg or Wittenberg, Germany. In fact, you remember from at least church history that Luther's bold stance there 500 years ago ignited the Protestant Reformation and the effects of the Reformation certainly still reverberate around the world today. And maybe as you've seen, there's been many conferences scheduled to this end on the Reformation. In fact, we've already made that our goal at Summerfest. We're going to be taking the five solas uh, each successive Wednesday night this summer in commemoration of that great event as we look to the Word of God. But I, I thought just here as we begin a new year, I'll jump back into John with you next week. I thought as the Lord's table is here and most of you haven't gotten your kids back in school that it would be maybe mindful of me and a good reminder for us to look and think on some of those grand doctrines. But the, the testimony of Luther is, is really amazing because as he sought to find peace with God, young Luther was besieged in his own heart by his doubts and he was filled with despair. And you can read this in his biography. In fact, in one of his most famous quotes before he came to Christ, Luther said, quote, If you had asked me, did I love God? I would say, love God? Sometimes I hated him. I saw Christ, Luther said, as a terrifying judge who had a sword of judgment over my head and I had no peace. End of quotes. And so he tried everything from sleeping on hard floors. I wouldn't commend that to you, but that's what he did. He, he slept on hard, because he was trying to work his way to God, but he slept on hard floors and he fasted. He used to climb a staircase in Rome while kneeling in prayer. He was involved in many other things of the disciplines and the confessions and the masses and the absolutions and good works, and they all proved helpless to him. Luther said this, quote, If ever a monk could get to heaven through his monastic discipline, I was that monk. He said, and yet my conscience would not give me certainty. And I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. And Luther said, the more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak and troubled conscience, the more daily I found, he said, it uncertain, weaker and troubled. And so nothing actually pacified his torment and conscience until he was appointed professor of Bible at Wittenberg, and he studied and expounded the book of Romans. Here's what Luther said. He said, I had longed to understand Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. He said, I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy 
He justifies us by faith. And in that famous statement by Luther, he said, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. That one truth from Luther transformed his heart, which led to the Reformation. In fact, Luther went on to say that the whole of Scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. And that passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. And he was brought to the Savior there. And that passage, just one passage, became the gateway into heaven. Luther, final paragraph, said, when the article of justification has fallen, he said everything has fallen. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. He said, and without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. It is the master and prince, the Lord and ruler, the judge over all kinds of doctrine. And that is his testimony. And it was that testimony that led to the posting of those theses on that church door 500 years ago before us. So as we prepare for the new year, as we prepare here for the Lord's table, what I'd like to do is just remind you of three vital truths regarding justification that will prepare us for communion, okay? Three vital truths regarding the doctrine of justification that will prepare us for communion. I want us to look this morning at the definition of justification. What is it? What would you say it is? Obviously, what does the Bible say it is? Then I want to look at the foundation of justification. What is the basis of it? What, is, what are the foundations of, or the foundation of that doctrine? And then thirdly, and maybe most importantly, the mechanism of justification. Okay, so let's define it. Let's look secondly at the foundation of it. And thirdly, let's look at the mechanism or the channel, sometimes we say, or the instrument of justification. And that will lead us right into the Lord's table so that as we begin this new year, we'll be focused in and zeroed in on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Open your Bibles first to Romans chapter 3. I want to take you over there in our study, Romans chapter 3. And let's look first at the definition of justification. Romans chapter 3, maybe before I define it for you, uh, biblically, and it'd be interesting if we took a little test, if we understood what this doctrine is. And you say, well, Scott, this is theology. No, this is just 101, okay? This, uh, uh, your child should understand this doctrine. You should understand this doctrine. This doctrine is life-transforming. In fact, you can't really understand the Christian faith until you understand this doctrine. And uh, it is, as Luther said, you know, the master, the prince, the lord and ruler, the judge over all kinds of doctrines. But first, in Romans 3.20, if you just glance there, he says, For by the works of the law, no human being 
here it is, will be justified in his sight. So I just want you to understand we're not dealing with theory here. We're dealing with a biblical word. Look over at Romans chapter 3 in verse 24. There he says we are justified by uh, his grace as a gift. If you look down in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith. Verse 30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and so forth. And there it goes and on it goes. It's all over the book of Romans. It is a biblical word. Well, very well. What, what does it mean? We're reading the word of God and those words mean something to us. And what is the doctrine of justification? Well, the word means profoundly, but simply to acquit. When you think of what that term means, it means to acquit. It, it's the concept here, the truth, where God Almighty declares you righteous. So to acquit you, to declare you righteous. I could just put it this way. It is the opposite of being condemned. I think we understand that if someone is condemned, they are condemned and they suffer the consequences of that. Justification, on the other hand, is to declare someone righteous. Now, obviously, when we talk about to acquit, I mean, we stand before God guilty and condemned in our sin. We certainly know that at Grace Church of the Valley. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We certainly understand Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Sin comes into the world. Sin came into the world with Adam. And once that sin came into the world through Adam and through Eve and so forth, back in the book of Genesis, the whole world was condemned. And so the truth is, is that all of us stand condemned before a holy God who cannot look on sin. And so man is in a desperate condition. Man is depraved to the core of his being. His mind is, is, is tainted. Our will is tainted. Our emotions are tainted. We say to some degree that that sin has expressed itself fully in our person to the point where we would use the phrase, we are totally depraved. We are unable to seek God. If you stand before God without understanding this truth, then you stand condemned. And the truth is, is the whole world is condemned. Okay? And so that's the thought here. And so in the doctrine of justification, that is a legal act of God... We put it in that kind of language because those are the terms used. But it is a legal act of God by which he declares the sinner righteous in his sights and righteous in the sight before him who is a holy and just God. And so he declares you righteous. But let me begin to unpack that just a little bit more. In the doctrine of justification... Here's how it works, at least in the definition of it. Something is removed, okay, and something is added. When God declares somebody justified, he removes something and then he adds something. And he does that by his own legal declaration, if you will. First, there is a removal, I think we understand, of sin and guilt. But then secondly, there is an impartation or an imparting of the righteousness of Christ. 
Let me just explain that and just remind you once again of this doctrine. I've probably put these truths out somewhere before, but I, but I just want us to lock in as we begin the new year there as we prepare for the Lord's table. First, in the doctrine of justification, when God declares you righteous, sin, number one, is removed. It is removed. The psalmist said in 32.1, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not count or counts no iniquity. And so in other words, here that man is blessed, whose sin, 32.1, is forgiven. Forgiveness is a promise in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It is a promise that God lets go of something. It is a promise that he will never bring it up against you again. And so in the doctrine of justification in 32.1, blessed, and the blessing is pronounced on those whose sin there is forgiven. And then he uses that phrase there, whose sin is covered. In other words, what Almighty God does with your sin, he not only removes that sin from you, he forgives your sin, and then if you will, he covers your sin so that it's no longer against you. I mean, I think we understand it. We're sinful people. We can never get in the presence of a holy God. And to even get into his presence, you've got to have that sin that stains us removed. And what Almighty God does in the doctrine of justification, when you come to faith in Christ, he removes all of your sin. He counts no iniquity against you. So, beloved, listen, I hope that's alone alone enough to come today to the Lord's table. That as the bread goes by and as the cup goes by, you're going to recognize that there was a time in your life. There was an event in your life. There was a time when you bowed your knee, when maybe you didn't know how to pray it right. Maybe you don't even know if if you prayed it accurately. I I don't think I knew that when I was 14. But all I know is when I bowed my knee and invited the Lord Jesus Christ into my heart, I I couldn't tell you this at that point, but at that point when I got off, off, off my knees, He had forgiven all of my sin. He had covered all of my sin. He had pronounced his blessing on me. And from that moment, he would never bring any uh, account against me. No iniquity will ever come before his presence. I mean, this is what Isaiah says, I think on the next slide. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And then there's the promise. I will not remember your sins. Listen, beloved, if you're in Christ and as we come to the Lord's table and you've been justified, he removes your sin. So in justifying the sinner, God deliberately erases from your account every single record of what you have done wrong. It's an amazing thought. And as the sin is blotted out, so does his memory of the misdeeds that you committed. He chooses to not bring them up anymore. Certainly at times the consequences of sin may remain, but the condemnation for the offense is gone. We are, in the biblical words, forgiven. We are covered. We are, if you come into this building this morning, blessed. No wonder Paul said in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no, what? Condemnation. Why? Because whatever 
stood between you and a holy God, when he justified you, he declared you righteous. And when he declared you righteous, he removed your sin. Not just for the moment, he removed it all, past, present, and future. Now, you know, when you look sometimes, and uh, time's limited, but in the scripture, when scripture talks and refers to the doctrine of justification, usually it says it like this, that we are, English tense, justified. Justified, and it's put in the past tense. In other words, because once he uh, declares you righteous, the thought is, he acquits you, and he declares that you are forgiven. Now, uh, let me just say this, too. Justification, when you think about the doctrine from the word of God, is, maybe I should put it in the form of a question. I'll just state it. It is never to be repeated. Okay? When you look at biblical justification, it is not a process. Okay? Sanctification, our effort to become more holy, is a process, and we're in process until glory. But when God Almighty justifies you and declares you righteous... It is not to be repeated. It is an instantaneous event. It is a declaration of righteousness that is complete at the time of your salvation, upon which the implications of that are huge for us practically. I mean, you should walk around. Sometimes it's easier to say. But you should just walk around blown away that he redeemed you. (laughs) Right? This is a minor statement. You should wake up in the day thinking he forgave all my sins. He removed all my sins. He justified me. He declared me righteous. And that event is to never be repeated. Why? Because that's a gift of his grace. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson said, because we are justified in him, that is, in his justification, our justification is also final and it's irreversible. In other words, beloved, I mentioned this for some time on the doctrine of 1 John. You don't need to get saved and saved again. You don't need to keep walking an aisle. You don't need to keep praying the prayer. When God declares you righteous, it's a promise that he removes all your sin. He just takes it away. He blots it out. He he forgives it. But beloved, this is only one aspect of the doctrine of justification. Sin's removed. Still under the definition. There's something more, okay, that is needed to be justified. And you know this. I'm just reminding you of it. But in justification, God not only forgives the sinner, but secondly, and as important, sometimes we forget this, God imputes, uh, that's a theological, he imputes or he imparts to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the gospel. So that when he justifies a sinner, he removes the sin, you could say negatively. And then positively, he imputes into your account as a gift of his grace, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You say, what do you mean the righteousness of Jesus Christ? We simply mean that it's his righteous life. We don't talk about that as much. We talk about the cross more and his death, and rightfully so. But he lived 33 years and he never, what? Sinned. 
in his heart, in his action. He fulfilled the law perfectly. Okay? And so when God declares someone righteous, when he acquits you, he not only removes your sin, but positively you can't stand before God because you don't have this thing called righteousness. We've sinned. So what God Almighty does is he sends his only begotten son to live a perfect life. And when you come to Christ, he not only takes away your sin, but he puts into your account the righteousness. You didn't live it. I didn't live it. But the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he therefore justifies you. This is what it means to be justified. I mean, the supreme need, at least in this second element, for sinners is righteousness. And the point is, we don't have it. But Jesus Christ supplies it on our behalf to the believing sinner. He keeps the law to perfection. The reformers used to call it, and I think you understand it. You've heard me mention this before. They call this an alien righteousness. Right? It's alien. In other words, it comes from the outside. You, you get the gospel. You don't have it. I don't have it. You have sin. I have sin. You need righteousness, but you don't have righteousness, and I don't have righteousness. All it takes is one sin, and you've transgressed against the whole law. But here, what, what, what happens, though, is you receive a righteousness from outside of yourself, and the righteousness you receive is from the Lord Jesus Christ. Wesley put it this way. You know the hymn, I think. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. And clothed, do you remember that? In righteousness divine. And we sing that. What do you mean? Clothed. You're covered Your sin's been removed, but you've been covered in the righteous life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so, beloved, that if Satan ever came after you, he can't come after you. God Almighty, if you can, it's all between your your eyes and your ears here, right? And your brain. He can't come after you. He can come after and try to discourage you. He is the accuser of the brethren who accuses you before God day and night. I get that, Romans 12. But listen, I'm telling you, as you sit there, if you're justified, you've had all your sins removed. And when God looks down on you, he looks down on you clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, he sees you righteous in the person of his son. The rock of ages hymn is great, is it not? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure. Save me from wrath and make me pure. But when he wrote that hymn, be of sin, the double cure, that's justification. You need a double cure, right? You need sins removed and you need righteousness added. And so that's what the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father did. Be of sin the double cure. He gave you the double cure. He removed your sin and gave you unto the Lord Jesus Christ. That's justification. Beloved, you're declared legally in God's sight, not guilty. And at the same time, you're declared righteous before a holy God. It's an amazing truth, isn't it? When he shall come, the hymn writer said, with trumpet sound. 
Oh, may I, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Listen, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back or you lose your life in this life, you're standing in the finished work of Christ. And the problem with some of us is we look too much to ourselves. And I've said it once, I'll say it again to you. For every look you take to yourself, take a hundred to the cross. Because you're going to fall short in 2017. You've probably already fallen short on your New Year's resolutions, haven't you? Uh, but praise the Lord, we have one who never fell, fell short. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the definition. The removal of sin It is the imputing of the righteousness of Christ. But secondly here, how is your sin taken away? I just spoke of that, but how is it taken away? Well, there's a second vital truth, and I'll just call it the foundation of justification. Okay? This is the foundation upon which that truth rests, much like we're building a building, are we not? And the, they're pouring the footings, at least they were last week, and they're going to pour the cement, and they're going to build that building upon that foundation. This doctrine is built off a foundation. I'll show you what it is. Look over at Romans 3. It couldn't be more clear in the Scripture. In Romans 3, we are, it says in 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. Now, he's real clear here. By his grace as a, what? Gift. Now, now, just stop there just for a second. Ah, you ought to be humbled. If you're in here and you're justified, you say, well, how much did that cost you? <laughs> that didn't cost you anything. But, but, if, but if, if I wanted to be a businessman, and I'm not, okay? People should pay their whole life to get this. But the truth of Scripture is the opposite of that thought. That if He justified you, He did so by His grace, not your effort, and He did it in 324 as a gift. Now watch this on the foundation. 324, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Beloved, the second vital truth is that the foundation of justification is on the basis, is on the foundation of the death of Jesus Christ. That's the bedrock in which this doctrine stands. In fact, look over at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. You'll see it there and you know this truth well. When it says, since therefore in 5.9, here it couldn't be clearer. We have now been justified, past tense, by his, what? Blood. You're justified by his blood. You say, well, how did he do it? Well, he removes your sins. Well, how does he do that? In the death of Christ. Well, he imparts the righteousness of Christ to you, and that righteous one died in your place. Look again at verse 10 of Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, here it is, by the death of his son, it says much more now, we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, saved by his righteous life. And that righteous life went unto death for us. Look over at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, the foundation 
is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.33, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, in other words, he does it, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. And so here, the foundation of justification, Romans 3, Romans 5, is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remembered singing that hymn often when I was younger. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Remember that he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the what? The prisoner free. Would you pray that some prisoners would open their heart up tonight? A teen challenge as Shea opens the word. But I like that hymn. It says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood, what? Availed for me. In other words, he shed his blood for you. So here it is. He removes your sin. He gives you the righteousness of Christ. But the foundation of justification biblically, the basis of it, is the cross of Christ. It is the foundation of our justification. It is the glorious finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. In other words, I can create a comparison here and you understand it. I don't have to say much. I mean, I'm pausing because you're probably just nodding. In a, it's not your works, though everybody in the world thinks that. It's not your merits. It's not your religion. It's not your good deeds. It's not your good works. It's not your baptism. It's not your membership. It's not your service for Christ. It's not your overseas trip. The foundation is the death on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ for you. We're not saved by anything we do. That is the power of the gospel. It leaves us humble. But here's the most important thing. And you've got to know this. How is justification appropriated to you? That's really the question. How is the righteousness of Christ appropriated to you? How do you get that? I mean, how does it become yours? It's not yours because you're sitting here today. It's not here because you had a godly grandfather. Praise the Lord for that. How do you get it? You don't get it because you got a godly grandmother. How do you get it? How does it become yours? Well, there's a third vital truth. We've already looked at the definition. We've looked at the foundation and the cross. But thirdly, the mechanism. I mean, if it'd be wrong if I didn't preach this. Wouldn't be preaching the gospel, I suppose. How does it become yours? I mean, you can't buy it. We've already said it's a gift. You can't earn it because he already said it's grace. I mean, this is the greatest thing in the world. <clears throat> How do you get it? Sharon uh, in Canada, my wife and I were sitting at a restaurant the day we left and talking to another young woman who lives with her boyfriend. Another woman my wife was talking to who was sharing the gospel and 
just kind of shut my wife down. I was kind of watching it and observing it. But how do you get this? I mean, the, the truth is we've got the greatest truth in all of the world. Amen. How do you get it, though? How does it become yours? And I, I should just stop and just pause here for a second. Are you justified as you sit here? Do, do, have you been declared righteous? Have you had your sins removed? Have you had the righteousness of Christ added unto you? Have you recognized that it's not our doing, but the foundation is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? But how do you, how, how does, how do you make a transaction? How, I mean, how does that really uh, become yours? You know, we were working uh, at the board meeting just talking about the Legacy Christian School. You know, the, most people in Uganda never finish elementary school and most people don't even know how to read and then here Shannon's got this school with smiles on their faces and it's it's based from a worldview of Christian truth but we're talking about how to link up donors that go online to sponsor one of these children it's a great thing but how do you make one of those child that appears on the computer yours how does that transaction work I was just thinking that in my mind and heart but even Here, more importantly, what's the mechanism for you? Let me just show you. Look over to Romans 4, okay? In Romans 4, and I think it's going to come up there on the screen. It says, and to the one, here it is, in 4 or 5, who does not work, but what? Believes. There's the mechanism. But believes, not your faith believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as what? Righteousness. Listen, that becomes yours when you, if I put it this way, drop the knee of your pride and you cry out in faith to a God who has the righteousness and the holiness based in the person of a son, to not only remove your sin, but give you the righteous. But how do you get it? You believe in him. People ask me all the time, hey, how did someone get saved in the Old Testament? And the answer is exactly the same. (laughs) Because that scripture, many of these are built off Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him as, as righteousness and so here you believe on him look at there Romans three twenty two. the righteousness of God is through what faith you get it through faith you can't buy it you can't earn you can't do deeds you can't perform service for it you can't just be a nice guy you can't just be a nice girl you need the righteousness of God and it comes through faith three twenty six. so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I think it goes on in Romans 3 in verse 28. Look at that there in Romans 3, 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so you've got to express faith. Listen, young families. Your children have to express faith. You know that. They're not saved because they got four generations. They've got to come to this point right here. Your grandchildren got to express faith 
which means they need to come to their own need. And there's a book that I've been talking to Dom about. It's by Ted Tripp or Paul Tripp uh, on parenting. And it's one of the best parenting books that uh, a friend of mine was telling me that he ever read because so often we want them to conform to standards when the real need is to understand their sin and their absolute need of a savior. But it's always through faith. Romans 3.30, since God is one, the one who will justify the, un, the circumcised, it says, by faith. In fact, it says more than that in, in 3.30. It says, and the uncircumcised through faith. Romans 5.1, therefore we have been justified by what? Faith. In fact, would you look just quickly over to the book of Galatians? Look at this statement in Galatians 2. And in verse 16, very clear there, he said there, yet we know that a person is not justified, 2.16, by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we who have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So scriptures affirm That the mechanism of being declared righteous or justified comes to us by faith alone in Christ. And that's obviously one of the solos or the solas, excuse me, of the Reformation. The Heidelberg Catechism, just a catechism from years ago, had a catechism. They asked questions and then children were to answer. I've always loved question 60. I don't think I have it up there, but listen to it. It said, how art thou righteous before God? In other words, how does someone get that righteousness? And here's the answer, and I'll read you their answer. Only by a true faith in Christ, so that though my conscience accuse me, and I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God, and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I had or never committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. That's a good answer, isn't it? So here... Faith is the mechanism. It's the instrument. It's not the cause. Let me be clear there, okay? It's not the cause of our justification. So what do you mean, Scott? Well, you're not justified. Let me just say it this way. Because of your faith, right? If that were true, faith would be understood then as a what? As a work, and you would be justified on the basis of our works, You are saved, let me just be super clear, because of your faith in the person of who? Jesus Christ. Your faith doesn't save you. My faith doesn't save me. But your faith in Jesus Christ does so that you're not making faith a work. You're saved. Faith always has a direct object to it and it is always the person of Christ. It is faith in the work of Christ, not faith in our faith, which is the foundation of justification. You say, well, Scott, then what is faith? Faith is humility. In other words, you have nothing to offer God but your sin and my sin. 
Faith, you know what it is? It's a total emptiness of all that is within you. In other words, you get to the point where you recognize your desperate condition and you get laid out before a holy God and you become undone and you realize that one sin would cast you away from his presence and you have nothing to offer God and you look to Christ. That's faith. It is total emptiness of all that is within me. Faith is utter despair except every, except everything that the person of Christ and what he has to offer. Faith makes the sinner conscious of his desperate condition and his tragic a judgment, if you will, upon him. And it makes one look to Christ. It looks away from self and it looks to Christ. Have you done that? I, I pray so. I pray so. You know, even just preaching, <laughs> just right now, it's always just humbling. It's nothing we did, is it? It's nothing we earned. Even the faith that he has is called a gift from God. But the faith that he ha- we have, he gave to us. And the faith that he gave to us, we look up to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, Scott, why is it by faith? Well, I'll let the Bible answer that. Look back at Romans chapter 4. Here's why it's by faith, and we're almost done here. Romans chapter 4, in verse 16, it says, that is why, this is a good one to remember, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on what? Grace. There it is. It depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. In other words, he gets the glory, you get humbled because he did the work because it's not something you did or I did, it's something that Jesus Christ did. Let me frame it this way. You have an illness, you cannot cure, it's called sin, but the cure, justification is offered and it's offered in the work of Jesus Christ and you must look to him and put all your trust, all your hope, all your confidence in him. Can I just illustrate this doctrine for you? It can be illustrated by the shocking ending of the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know it, and I think it comes up on the screen in just a moment. Or just listen if it's not. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. Uh, What? A sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, This man went down to his house justified, justified, rather than the other. Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's just the perfect illustration of justification. I love what the hymn writer said. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and what? Righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand, and all other ground is sinking, what? Sand. I pray that you're hoping in the Lord Jesus Christ for your justification.